I V M. I know, I know. It doesn't feel like the end of September at all. But that's the funny thing about time. One day it's spring and the flowers are blooming and before you know it, big politicians meet, terrorists carry out attacks, no one can agree on Brexit and everyone blames everyone else for the state of the world. Hello and welcome to States of Anarchy. I'm your host, Hamsani Hariharan, and every week I discuss global affairs and foreign policy with an expert. Today's episode is not a conversation, though. It's a roundup of all the major events that took place in the month of September, both in India and across the world. It's a part of a series that I began in July, and the basic idea is this. On the last Tuesday of every month, I round up all the important international news so that you can be up to date on what happened and have context for all the nuanced conversations that we generally have on the podcast. We begin this time with updates on stories that we missed out in the last week of August. An important one was the 45th G7 summit that was held between the 23rd and the 26th of August. What's significant about this is the fact that Prime Minister Narendra Modi was invited to attend despite not being one of the seven members of the group. The invitation, extended by French President Emmanuel Macron, was said to be a reflection of the personal relationship between the two leaders. At the summit, Prime Minister Modi held talks with the UN Secretary General, Antonio Guterres, and also the President of the United States, Donald Trump. Trump's willingness to mediate between India and Pakistan on the Kashmir issue was brought up, but PM Modi reiterated the fact that it was an internal issue of India that needs no external mediation. Prime Minister Modi also met with the newly elected Prime Minister of the UK, Boris Johnson, congratulating him on his victory. The two leaders agreed to work towards improving bilateral relations between the two countries. Our mission to the moon, Chandrayaan 2, lost out on success by the tiniest bit of distance when the ground station lost contact with the Vikram lander, which housed the rover Pragyan, while it was just about 2.1 kilometers above the surface of the moon. It was unclear whether or not the lander had reached the requisite speed to be able to make a soft landing on the moon, or whether it would have been too fast and thus unable to sustain the magnitude of the damage. Either way, we have no way of knowing. While Israel continued to make attempts at establishing contact, it turned out to be rather unsuccessful. They did, however, locate the position of the lander on the moon. The rover, which had 14 days to be able to complete its task, is now coming to the end of this period, after which it will lose sunlight and the mission will entirely come to an end. The incident sent waves of emotion across the country, with the trip to the south of the moon having come to an unsuccessful end, just when things seemed to be going well. Videos went viral about Prime Minister Modi consoling the chairman of ISRO, K. Sivan. It was at this point that the US swooped in with an announcement that NASA's lunar probe would be flying over the crash site on the 17th of September in order to shed more light over what could have possibly happened with the Vikram lander. However, due to shadows in the area, the exact position couldn't be located. But NASA did go on to share images of the site at which the lander was intended to land. Israel has since then been working on finding out what went wrong. But something that I found hilarious personally was the number of mansplainers in the internet. A number of people decided to explain how space travel worked to Dr. Anita Sen Gupta, a former NASA scientist and co-founder of Airspace Experience Technologies. I know that every third person in this country is an engineer, but the urge to mansplain science to us gentle and dumb women is very alluring. But itna pata hai, you can always quit your cushy IT job and join Israel, na? 
In other news, Prime Minister Modi travelled to Russia for a two-day state visit to attend summit talks with Vladimir Putin and to also attend the Eastern Economic Forum. This was the fifth Eastern Economic Forum for which Prime Minister Putin invited Modi as its chief guest. The forum focuses on development of business and investment opportunities in the Russian Far East region. The two leaders also signed 25 agreements on various issues such as defence, trade, industrial investments and so on. But Modi ji is not done there yet. He is currently on a trip to the United States of America between the 21st and the 27th of September. He first met with representatives of the American energy companies like ExxonMobil and Schlumberger in order to convince them to supply oil at discounted prices given the oil raise following attacks in Saudi Arabia that we'll discuss in a bit. On the 22nd the Howdy Modi event was held and it had both Modi and Trump on the stage together. The whole event was a little bizarre. It almost seemed like Modi was campaigning for Trump. Side note, he actually did say the words ab ki baar Trump sarkar. What does that say about the Indian policy of non-intervention? If our head of state is clearly endorsing one candidate in the democratic politics of an other state. I don't know. Perhaps the prime minister feels the need to assuage Trump to reduce trade tensions and to stimulate investment. The thing is Donald Trump is also aiming to go through with a set of mini deals with Japan and India. These limited trade deals are the result of Trump's efforts to score some wins amid a protracted trade fight with China. This is also a means for him to show his people that he's delivering on his promises to do trade ahead of the general elections in the US in 2020. Our Minister for External Affairs S Jayashankar also visited various states. He first went to the Maldives between the 3rd and 4th of September during the 4th Indian Ocean Conference. It was held given the increasing attention that the Indian Ocean has been getting over the years as a passage for trade, especially since China has been working on improving its foothold in the region. The Minister for External Affairs also visited Indonesia and Singapore between the 4th and the 5th of this month, and this is important because this is the first visit of a union minister to Indonesia after the Modi government came to power for a second term. Moving on to some domestic and less heartening news. The state of Kashmir as on the 23rd of this month has remained under clampdown for more than 50 days. While landline services have been resumed, internet facilities are still down and people still don't have the freedom of movement. The scroll and the wire on various occasions have reported that victims of pellet gun fire have been resorting to curing themselves at home instead of stepping out of the house. Amateur doctors have also been treating victims who've been too scared to step out of their homes and head to hospitals. A report by the Scroll on the 19th of September speaks of Ahmed, a student of commerce who's emerged as an expert on how to treat pellet gun wounds. He said, and I quote, "When pellets enter your body, you feel like everything inside you is burning. The pellets are very hot when they're fired. They're very dangerous if they hit a person in the eyes or if they hit your body from a short distance. But if they hit your back or legs from a long distance, you can manage without basic first aid." End quote. On the economic front, the RBI's economic report for the year 2018-2019 revealed that the economy was undergoing a serious slowdown. The report, which was released on the 29th of August, led to the realization of several key details. The Modi government also finally admitted that the country's GDP in the April-June quarter grew at a meager 5% as compared to 8% at the same time 2 years ago. This is the lowest growth rate in the past 6 years. It's an indication that tougher times are lying ahead. The slowdown in the automobile sector, the rising number of non-performing assets, the sluggish consumer demand, they all have a hand in the deceleration of the country's economic growth. 
Nirmala Sitaraman on one occasion even went on to say that the reason for this slowdown in the automobile market is because millennials are increasingly relying on cabs rather than learning how to drive and buying vehicles. Guys, I personally think that she's right. All of us young people need to just get jobs that pay us enough so that we can afford cars that guzzle non-subsidized petrol instead of copping out and taking Ubers everywhere. Just one small doubt minister madam where are these jobs exactly I'm a podcaster I won't even be able to contribute to the bicycle industry at my rates One important move that the commerce minister did announce was a cut in corporate taxes on the 20th of this month a welcome move given our sluggish growth according to reports the government has cut corporate taxes for domestic companies from 30% to 22% What's more, new domestic manufacturing companies incorporated after October 1st will be asked to pay only as little as 15% provided that they start manufacturing by 2023. That is a year before the next general elections. The move is aimed at increasing investment in the private sector, given that a reduced investment aside from the lack of consumer consumption was one of the two main causes said to be responsible for this slump. The cut in corporate taxes chooses to single out private investment. This is a long-term measure that would make it more attractive for existing and new businesses to invest and increase production, which in turn will create employment. Hopefully. Here's one interesting thing that also happened this month. India and South Korea have joined a list of those countries with bans on e-cigarettes. Once this ban comes into force, the consumption, production, manufacture, import and export of e-cigarettes will become illegal in India. In her justification of the ban, Nirmala Sitaraman said that while e-cigarettes were initially seen as a way for steering people away from smoking, studies have shown that people have now become addicted to them. The ban is primarily aimed at the youth and it hopes to prevent them from getting addicted to products that don't serve them well. Now the major concern for vape manufacturing companies are knockoff vapes that are infecting the market. In California for example, bootleggers are carefully mimicking popular legal vaping brands with potentially dangerous cannabis oil that's produced in the underground markets. These low quality vaping products have been leaving people sick and have also led to seven deaths. As a result, popular manufacturers are spending millions of dollars to redesign their packaging and product security. Experts according to an article in the Indian Express have also linked their counterfeit vapes to an emerging public health crisis. Now I have a very clear position on bans which is that they don't help anyone. Banning something just creates victimless crimes which means that people aren't going to stop vaping they're just going to be doing it illegally and creating a new market a black market that caters to them. The problem with a lot of vape related health issues in the United States particularly is that people are smoking dangerous cannabis oil and that's only going to increase if the science behind vaping is that dodgy maybe we should find out exactly what is going wrong instead of copying legislation from other countries and since we're on the subject can i suggest that you read the book thank you for smoking it's a satire about the tobacco lobby in the united states and has great insights on public affairs at this point let's take a break Hello everybody, welcome to another awesome week on the IVM Podcast Network. If you are not following us on social media, please make sure you do. We're IVM Podcast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Instagram was a big week for us this week. We crossed 10,000 followers. Also, you should check out the kind of stuff that we do over there, get a look into the studio, and you know, I mean like see some of the quotes and stuff like that that come out and uh, audiograms and you know all that other kind of good stuff. So, you know, let me tell you about two new shows that are coming up, right? So, the first one let me talk to you about is GBCD. This show is hosted by Farhad and Sunetru. They share the ABCDs of their queer lives and dig into the memories and experiences. Tune in for a new episode every week on Tuesdays. 
Another show we're really excited to bring you is called Feeding 10 Billion. This show is hosted by Good Food Institute's Varun Deshpande and Ramya Ramamurthy. They talk to experts in the food industry about rethinking protein and reimagining food systems in India. New episodes out every Tuesday for this show as well. Also, Simplified is completing 150 episodes. My God, I can't believe that we're already there. They need your help to celebrate this milestone. Send us theories, concepts, or questions that you have using the hashtag Simplified150 on Twitter or send us a DM on Instagram. And Chuck Narinashrikas will answer your questions on episode 150. On The Seen and the Unseen, Amit is in conversation with journalist and author Akshay Mukul. They deep dive into his book about the Gita Press. On Pesa Vesa, Anupam is joined by founder and CEO of Markets Mojo, Dr. Mohit Patra. They talk about minimizing risks and maximizing returns and understanding investment behavior. On the Empowering series, Zarina is joined by celebrity fitness coach Bakar Nasser. He talks about the importance of exercising and how he started his own indoor cycling studio topspin. On Varta Lab, Akash and Naveen talk to Tejinder Singh, the man behind the popular Insta handle Kamaka Photo Artist. On Golgappa, Tripti is joined by Monica Godbole, who shares her experience working on the set and how she found her passionate calling to creativity. On Puliyabazi, Saurabh and Pranay talk to Divyanshu Potar, co-founder of Rocketeers, India's first solid-fuel-powered model rocket kit manufacturer. On Kinetic Living, Coach Urmi shares a workout routine called Seated Twisted on Tabata Tuesdays. And on Thriving Thursdays, she highlights the benefit of nutrient-dense foods. And with that, let's get you on with your show. Welcome back after the break. You're listening to States of Anarchy and I'm Hamsani Hariharan. Back to international relations, our island neighbour Sri Lanka has seen quite a bit of development under the One Belt, One Road initiative of the Chinese government. On the 16th of September, it unveiled South Asia's tallest tower, costing over $100 million. 80% of the tower was funded by China. The 17-storey building, located in the heart of Colombo City, comprises of a television tower, a hotel, a telecommunications museum, restaurants, auditoriums, an observation deck, a shopping mall, and a conference centre. Now, this is interesting, because just last year, Sri Lanka leased its port in Hambantota to China for a period of 99 years, because it couldn't pay back loans that it had undertaken to pay for the port. Sri Lanka does have a serious foreign debt problem, but you can't blame it all on China. There are structural issues within the Sri Lankan economy that still need serious reform. Speaking of China, the protests in Hong Kong over the controversial extradition bill are still underway as you listen to this podcast. On September 4th, Carrie Lam, the chief executive, announced that she would withdraw the bill that would allow for Hong Kongers to be extradited to China. However, despite the withdrawal, Clashes between the protesters and the police are deeply affecting the island. For starters, the people of Hong Kong have been demanding the resignation of Carrie Lam, who they view as a puppet of Beijing. Second, there's the fact that there are demands for amnesty for all those protesters who've been arrested over the last three months. We don't know how long the protests will continue and when the mainland is going to crack down on them. This is true because Chinese National Day is coming up on the 1st of October. You see, 2019 marks the 70th anniversary of the People's Republic of China. And the Communist Party wants the celebration to showcase everything that the state has achieved since inception. Perhaps this is one reason why they don't want Hong Kong to grab all the spotlight. Anyway, China is planning to show off its most advanced active weapon systems with its national parade. And since I'm in Beijing, let me tell you that security has been amped up, some subway stations are closed, drones and other objects have been banned, and a lot of the bars in the city are closed till October 1st. It doesn't sound fun, I know, but the parade is bound to be. So see if you can catch a live stream of it. It's going to be a good exercise in political signalling. 
The other China, aka Taiwan, has been facing serious diplomatic hurdles over the past few weeks. Two of its allies, the Solomon Islands, followed by Kiribati, have moved to cut diplomatic ties with it within a space of one week. This has resulted in the total number of diplomatic allies coming down to 15 from the previous 17. In response to Kiribati's move, Taiwan's foreign minister, Joseph Wu, announced that Taiwan would be cutting all ties with the country and will immediately close its embassy also. Taiwan has lost seven diplomatic allies ever since the election of its president, Tsai Ing-wen, in 2016. Remember that till 1971, Taiwan was the state that held the permanent seat in the United Nations Security Council, representing all of China. One of the sources of sovereignty come from international recognition. So for Taiwan, this is a serious blow, because states in the South Pacific and the African continent have historically backed it in the UN. Moving to the west of China, the deal between the United States and the Taliban over the American withdrawal from Afghanistan has been put off because various attacks have taken place at the hands of the Taliban through the last month. For instance, between the end of August and the 19th of September, 259 pro-government forces and 222 civilians have been killed in multiple incidents. Talks between the US and Taliban remain called off during this period. Whether or not the attacks will come to an end is unclear, but the US seems reluctant to make a deal with the Taliban until things change. But the most important story in the Middle East this month is not Afghanistan. It's Saudi Arabia. Two oil processing plants were rocked by a series of explosions in Saudi Arabia on the 14th of September as they were hit by cruise missiles and drones. The larger facility, known as Abkhyak, is one of the world's major providers of oil and the attack has rocked global oil prices. In India, for instance, the attack led to an increase in prices by almost 5 rupees. According to Bloomberg, and I quote, damage to the two sites reduced Saudi Arabia's oil production by 5.7 million barrels a day from about 9.8 million. As a single impact event, it was probably the largest disruption to the oil market ever, end quote. Now, just a few hours after the attack, Houthi rebels from Yemen claimed responsibility. But while Houthi rebels have used drone attacks in Saudi Arabia in the past, these oil fields are far too inland for their missiles to possibly reach. Anyway, Saudi Arabia has stated that it has evidence that it's actually Iran that's behind the attack. The US has slapped sanctions on Iran's central bank and its sovereign wealth fund. It's also set to deploy troops to Saudi Arabia and send over military hardware to both Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates. On Iran's part, it's blamed the US actions on mere posturing. Now, how does all of this affect India? Saudi Arabia's new oil minister, Prince Abdulaziz bin Salman, has assured India that despite the setback after the airstrike, the kingdom aims at restoring production to pre-strike levels by the end of September. If Saudi Arabia isn't able to meet this commitment, then the spike in crude oil prices will only worsen India's current account deficit as the rupee weakens. So whether or not the crisis escalates, it's one story we have to closely follow. Now let's move to Israel. The country held its second elections in less than six months. During the elections that were held in April, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu appeared to have won. His right-wing bloc won 65 of 120 seats, keeping everyone under the assumption that he would be in power. However, it turned out that five of those 65 seats belonged to the party of Avigdor Lieberman, Netanyahu's foreign and defence minister. It must be noted that no party has ever formed a majority in the past, making it essential for them to form coalitions in order to form the government. Most of the time, though, elections have been held because one party or the other pulls out of the coalition, breaking down the majority. 
The elections that were held on the 17th of September was the fourth election in six years. See, two elections in less than a span of six months is not something that happens very often. But here's why it happened in Israel. During the 9th April elections, Netanyahu's party won 35 seats, the same as their main rival, a new party called the Blue and White, formed by the retired head of the military, Penny Gantz. Netanyahu, however, failed to form a coalition with the other right-wing and religious parties. Adding to the fires, the fact that Netanyahu pledged to annex the Jordan Valley in the West Bank, a move that's garnered international outcry. You also have to remember that a loss for Netanyahu might affect Israel's relationship with the US, given that Trump has done a lot to help Netanyahu at home. He moved the embassy to Jerusalem, among others. The result of the elections have left people with no clear winner, but it signaled a danger for Netanyahu. According to a report by Vox, by the time 90% of the vote was counted, the Blue and White Party had 32 seats, while Netanyahu's had 31. Neither party was thus able to form an outright majority in parliament, meaning that they'll have to reach some sort of power-sharing agreement, known as national unity, or they'd have to cobble together some coalition out of the seven smaller parties that make up the parliament. Now, in major news coming from Africa, former Prime Minister of Zimbabwe, Robert Mugabe, died in Singapore at the age of 95. Mugabe had ruled Zimbabwe under a tight fist for almost four decades until he was ousted by the military in November 2017. Now, he was initially admired as a hero of Zimbabwe's independence struggle, but his rule did go into a reign of tyranny, incompetence and corruption. As a result, his death led to mixed reactions from Zimbabwe and the rest of the world. Several world leaders did speak out, including Vladimir Putin, who said, and I quote, Many important events in the contemporary history of Zimbabwe are linked with the name of Robert Mugabe. He made a major personal contribution to the struggle for your country's independence and to building institutions of Zimbabwean statehood. The people of Russia will remember him as a consistent advocate of developing friendly relations between our countries and a person who had accomplished a great deal to strengthen mutually beneficial bilateral cooperations. Several other leaders also pointed to his freedom struggle, but also stated that he would be remembered for his corrupt practices over the years. None of us want to speak ill of the dead, and Mugabe's legacy is morally ambiguous, to say it in the nicest way. Speaking of moral ambiguity, let's move on to Britain. The start of the month of September saw British lawmakers vote against Boris Johnson, preventing him from moving out of the European Union without a deal. The lawmakers forced his hand by voting 328 to 301. Boris then won a second bid to hold a snap election. The government needed 434 votes from all lawmakers in the lower house of the parliament. However, during the time of the vote, only 293 people supported the government's proposal. This was the second time in the same week that Boris faced a setback in parliament. After this, parliament was suspended for five weeks and is set to resume on the 14th of October. Johnson has said that Brexit will go through, despite any obstacles that the government tries to put in to tie his hands. As of now, the parliament continues to be suspended. But hold on to your seats, because the drama that is Brexit is not yet over. The Supreme Court of Britain is currently deliberating on whether or not Boris Johnson unlawfully advised the Queen of England to suspend the parliament. A Scottish court ruled Johnson's suspension unlawful because he did it to stop ministers from scrutinising Brexit. The Prime Minister previously insisted he sought the suspension so that the government could set out a new legislative programme. But the court said the prorogation was obtained for, I quote, improper purpose of stimming Parliament, end quote. What the court rules on this issue is yet to be seen. 
Well, the United States would like to assume that it has moral authority over the rest of us. International relations proves that it's not so. In the US, the National Security Advisor John Bolton was reportedly fired by President Donald Trump over disagreements on foreign policy issues in Afghanistan, Iran and North Korea. While Trump stated that he fired Bolton, the advisor himself stated that he resigned. Bolton is the third national security advisor to be fired in the last 3 years, a move that's left all of Congress surprised. This was followed by Trump's announcement on the 18th of September that the State Department official Robert O'Brien would be the next national security advisor. How things change on the US's stance towards these issues is yet to be seen. The month of September has also seen forest fires ravage various parts of our globe, choking the earth's lungs. They've been a reminder about how dire climate change is. California, for instance, has seen major wildfires. Two of them, the Walker Fire and the South Fire, began on the 4th and 5th September respectively. They've caused damage to an area of more than 60,000 acres across the region. While there have been the occasional rains, they've done little to improve the situation. On the other side of the world, Indonesia and Malaysia have too been affected by wildfires, and the two countries have been trading blame about where the fires began. Regardless of where the source lies, the situation has become dangerous and will affect pollution levels across all of Southeast Asia. The need to address the dangers of climate change have led to long overdue action in Germany, where Chancellor Angela Merkel is working on an investment package worth approximately 50 billion euros that aims to put German efforts to cut carbon emissions back on track. Her plan includes the introduction of a carbon price for key sectors like transport and 54 billion euro spending package to encourage companies and households to reduce carbon emissions. The deal is supposed to send a strong political signal ahead of the UN climate summit in New York. The aim is that this deal will repair Germany's tarnished image in terms of contributions to the global fight to protect the environment. Last but not the least, in a major global move against climate change, the 20th of September saw what was possibly the largest global march against climate change ever. Young protesters from every continent came out on the streets to protest against the lack of action being taken by leaders to address the issue. The scale of the march was so large that organizers estimate the numbers were close to 4 million people over thousands of cities worldwide. Here's a small clip from the speech of Greta Thunberg at New York. Thunberg is the 16-year-old Swedish climate activist whose one-person strikes in Stockholm helped ignite a global movement. We have not taken to the streets sacrificing our education for the adults and politicians to take selfies with us and tell us that they really really admire what we do. We are doing this to wake the leaders up. We are doing this to get them to act. We deserve a safe future. And on her inspiring words, let's end this episode of States of Anarchy. A huge shout out to my favorite person, aka Vikram Varma, who helped me script this episode. Vikram is a student of journalism with a keen interest in foreign policy and international relations. If you have any questions or comments, do reach out to me at the rate States of Anarchy on Instagram or at the rate Hamsini H on Twitter. You can listen to States of Anarchy on the IBM podcast app, website, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be back next week. Do you wish you were smarter? 
Well, so do we. But the next best thing, we could make you sound smarter. And to help you with this endeavor, we are Simplified, Ooh. a podcast uh, that attempts to break down the complex world around you with a little knowledge, a lot of poor jokes, and a ton of random trivia. Episodes out every Monday on the IVM podcast app or wherever you get your podcasts. See ya. Hi, I'm Satyajit. Hi, I'm Racheta. We are from the Open Library Project, and we host a podcast called Paperback. Paperback is a podcast where we engage with stalwarts and experts from various industries, suggesting non-fiction titles that contributed to their journey in a big way. We've had guests like Anjali Rana, Dr. Marcus Rani, Dr. Swati Loda, Ambi Parmeswaran, Apurva Damani, and many more on our show Paperback. Find new episodes every Wednesday on IVM Podcast app, website, or wherever you listen to podcasts.